Hello, and welcome to the 15th episode of Collectability Podcast. As I told you all during my last podcast with the magnificent MIH deputy curator, Natalie Mariloni, she represented the first woman in the podcast series, but certainly not the last. Today, I renew that pledge and am deeply humbled to welcome world-class artist and enameler Anita Porcher. Born in La Chaux de Fonds, Switzerland, Anita Porcher was only 12 years old when her godfather, himself an engraver and an enameler, introduced her to this century-old art. Trained in the craft by Pierre Schneeberger, she studied at the School of Applied Arts in La Chaux de Fonds, where she obtained her diploma in 1984 with an option on engraving and enamel. She then went on to study fine arts in Lausanne, also requesting that her final year be devoted to engraving and enameling. The fact that she had to make a special request to study the technique for which Switzerland was once famous shows the state in which the art of enamel had fallen at that time. She was literally learning a trade on the brink of extinction. In the year following her academic pass, Anita Porcher continued her practical training with Geneva master enamelists May Mercier, Susan Rohr, Elisabeth Motu, Juillera. In 1983, she carried out her first works for watchmaking. Today, the epicenter of her world is a jeweler's workbench in her home and atelier, a gift for her 20th birthday. Dear Anita, it's a true honor and a real privilege to have you here today for this episode of Collectability Podcast. It's my pleasure to meet you again. First question, Anita. In the past, you were a school teacher, but ended up falling in love with drawing and painting. Well, it actually started when I was very little. I loved to draw in my room and uh, redo things. And after the age of 13 or 14, I attended evening classes to learn how to draw better. I think it was a very intimate occupation, where I was completely alone, allowing me to escape a little. It just suited me. After, when I was still in high school, around 17, maybe 18 years old, I did do some formal studies. I met a drawing professor, and it's always these little things in life that make us take one direction or another. I had these little words, uh, encounters, and this professor told me, come to me, what do you want to do after? And I told him, I don't know yet, I'm still deciding if I will attend university or not. And he told me, you should think about doing something related to drawing, something to do with art. And then it struck me a little and I told myself, I have a lot of respect for this teacher. I think I told myself, maybe that's it. Maybe he is telling me that I have a chance at this. So it's the little things. Afterwards, when I was 18 and became an adult, I went to university and discovered that I was also profoundly passionate about mathematics. So I had to choose, and I decided on fine arts. And that was thanks to my godfather. I frequently talk about this person who guided me. 
and really led me into the artistic fields, where creation was much broader than drawing or the art of enamel. It was the music, really. He was a musician, and I'd been playing the violin, like him, since the age of eight. There was music and painting in his house. We went to look at exhibitions, so it was a window into creation, which was important. He was also an engraver, a jeweler and a stonesetter, and had started to explore enamelling. It was with him that I made my first steps in enamelling at a time when there were no enamelling courses or schools. So he told me to try out an artistic education in general. And that was very, very good advice for the time. He was actually a kind of spiritual father who guided me on this path. He had a lot of contacts and affinities, and he was skilled. He was an engraver. And then he was a violinist too. He created a chamber orchestra in the city where he lived. He played the violin for 50 years in this orchestra. And then, really, I just loved the workshop's atmosphere. I think it was mainly this meeting with him. I loved being with him and doing what he was doing. So we had a lot to share during his lifetime. Music, painting, everything that was beautiful, really. And poetry, too. I could send him poems that I liked. And he would also send me poetry. He loved beautiful furniture and architecture. He was someone who was passionate about architecture and who created his own company. So we studied Le Corbusier a lot as he lived in La Chaux-des-Fonds. To me, he was someone always in search of beauty in all areas. And today, you are an animal because of him. Your atelier, your workshop, is actually organized in the same fashion as his was. One can see that he was a significant person in your life. Absolutely. When he died some years ago, it was actually four years ago, I realized that my atelier was built in the same style as his. That's to say, it was open to nature. We both had a workbench in front of a bay window. He had his garden, flowers, trees and sky, and we often looked at them together. And I could do the same, and I did it without thinking. I created it exactly the same way, but it wasn't a deliberate process. And when he died, his wife and two daughters visited me, and they were very, very moved. And this is a small but very human anecdote, because they said to me, Ah, but you also put a maple tree in front of the workshop. And I hadn't even remembered that he had put a maple tree in front of his workshop. And when he died, the tree died. And when they visited me, they found a beautiful maple tree in front of the workshop, like the one in front of his workshop. I knew all that, and I forgot about it. The girls told me, it's incredible, us finding the tree that died in our house, here, in your house. You once said in an interview that she didn't choose to work in this field. It had become a necessity. 
So, as I said before, we meet a teacher. I can't explain why. So, first, yes, why? I liked working in this field, thanks to my godfather and the significant work I did with him. He did the research, and it was an atmosphere that I really liked. Even though I didn't have a lot of work, or very little, I couldn't make a living out of it, but I continued to do enamelling one way or another, by researching, making jewellery, contemporary jewellery, not at all classic. I've always done enamel, but I can't explain it really. It was a need, a pleasure, but I never... It's difficult. I never made myself do it. It happened just like that, and it was a necessity, and I was able to do it. And then, at some point, I quit teaching. I said to myself, I don't want to teach anymore. It was because I had lived through some very good years. And also a little drama. I had lost my colleague that I worked with, and I thought to myself, she's gone. I have to change. I'm not going to teach anymore. It's over. Because I wouldn't find a collaboration and a friendship like that again. And I said, OK, I'm going to try to knock on the doors of different watch manufacturers. The time had come to find out if I could make a living out of enameling. And we know that enameling is used to decorate dials in watchmaking. Of course, there are thousands of different colors, and they always react differently after multiple firings in the kiln at more than 800 degrees Celsius. Still, expertise and knowledge are essential to obtain them. This is true. Absolutely. But I can say that I am still learning. I can't stop learning even at this level. I still have colours that I haven't yet explored completely or researched. In this art, when you know a colour, you master it entirely. But we're not going to look for it until we need it. I test all the time with each new project. I dive into my colours and say to myself, there it is, I don't know it yet, I'll try it, maybe. So my colour palette is constantly being enriched. But I always have failures, problems that I have to solve at any given moment. So, effectively, it is a long learning process. But that's what keeps me going, too. I mean, I could just say to myself, here, I only use these colours and reject everything I don't know. On the contrary, I always like to look for something new. And that's what really motivates me to keep going all the time. When you examine an antique piece, for example, made under the Blois style, or even later, it is possible to identify techniques that we no longer know today and have to relearn. Are those techniques lost in time, maybe forever? I think there are mixes of techniques that we can't rediscover or haven't explored at all and that I think we should relearn. Unfortunately, today there are still a lot of requests that don't consider these techniques because it's a craft that is currently significantly linked to the industry. So it has been a while since we saw innovation. Maybe the industry lacks creativity. And then the world markets also move toward other demands. 
I don't think the American market will appreciate the same things as the Asian market or the markets in Arabia. They have cultures that want or appreciate very different things. So I think that we have lost a lot already with industrialization. In any case, watchmaking has turned a lot towards gem setting and jewelry. At one point, it was necessary to include a lot of stones. There was an added financial value to this. The buyer, the collector, has also bought into an investment, not just beauty. So what interests or fascinates me in this profession is that the primary raw material is not expensive. It is not exceptional in itself. It's just glass. What you're going to buy in a watch with an enamel dial is the work. It's the know-how of the creator. And that's what fascinates me, because we can say that in the 18th, 19th century, they had much less sophisticated and pleasant living conditions than those we have today. And yet, they did things that we are no longer capable of doing. So, I think there are several factors. There is the time factor. From the moment that time is linked to money, that means that we profit. It's not at all the same perspective. It's no longer the same thing. But as I was saying earlier, at some point, watchmaking no longer had the market demand that required the art of enameling. So it turned instead to gem setting, and we forgot about enameling. Watchmakers did not want to make watches they couldn't sell. So, I would say it was the change in society and trends that led to the closure of enameling schools in Switzerland. And, in turn, this led to the closure of a famous factory that manufactured enamels in Geneva. So, we no longer have the exceptional quality of material we once had, which is a problem for the future. Besides, and we can talk about this later, but I think we have lost certain techniques that we can no longer do. I also believe that we will not be able to relearn them because we now see this art form from another perspective. Nevertheless, you never actually control everything in anomaly. You just expect it to go the way you want it to, particularly when you mix fire into the process. Even after all these years of work, Nita, do you think there is still a lot to be learned on the art of enameling? You already said that you are learning every day. It's a long learning curve. Now, believe me, it depends. It might be different for many other enamelers because when I started to look for work again, there wasn't any, very, very little. I had to diversify a lot. This means that I am not specialized in a singular enameling technique, which was the case before. This means that there were people who did miniature painting and specialized in rendering flowers, and who only made flowers. So it's true that if all our life we're just going to make roses and daisies and so on, and we're going to retain the same colors, we will become super experts. So I was doing cloisonné. Then I had a client who told me to include paillonné. I said, OK, I'll try it. 
At this time, I accepted every kind of work submitted to me. So I became a little multi-technique oriented. But maybe that is why it became a bit more complicated for me. Because I can't master all the techniques as if I was working in only one technique. So that's why it would take several more lifetimes for me to perfect myself. But at the same time, it opened doors for me in terms of creativity. I find that very important. And I play with these new techniques, these different techniques. And maybe that's one thing that's different. When I have an image, I will modulate it and improve it. Sometimes I choose one technique or two techniques, sometimes three. And for me, that choice matches the image in a way so it will look its best. That's what I'm looking for. But then it's like I have this multi-technique signature that I find very interesting at a creative level. We can say that it's a kind of fusion. An example is a fusion of enameling types and techniques, like associating cloisonné with bayonnage. Applying them together on a single piece is not that common, is it? No, and that's what I like. It's good sometimes, although I take on too many challenges every time. And I have other ideas. That's why I still encounter so many problems after so many years. But I like it. I like the fact that when you mix techniques, it brings about much bigger technical issues than if I stay with just a single technique. Because the firing times are not the same. So I must have a process, which means I can't compensate for any errors. If, in the end, I have a problem with a step that I did at the beginning, I will no longer be able to correct anything because it will require me to fire the enamel too many times and I will jeopardize all the work that I put in at a point where I'm almost done. Sometimes it's complicated, but there it is. It's interesting. But let's talk more about technique. You need, on average, about 20 firings in the kiln fixate the colors in a miniature painting over enamel. Well, I have to add something to this, because unfortunately we live in a world that always needs numbers. I'm not at all into this perspective. I've heard extravagant things where there was talk about 40 firings, and sometimes they talk about an incredible time to do certain things. It took six months to put a red. There is something wrong here, as if the longer it takes, the more firings, the more interesting it is. No, I don't think so. A real connoisseur, a real collector, has to love a piece even if it's quite simple. It has to show feeling. There has to be an emotion going on. If we're talking about, for example, decorative pieces, there are incredibly artistic pieces at all levels of enamel in this profession. So, when there is talk about 20 firings, I mean, sometimes I reach that number in a miniature painting. But in these 20 firings, there is all the preparation of the base, for example, which in itself will already take perhaps six firings. If I have a speck of dust falling on the surface on the fifth or sixth firing, I will have to fire one more time. So by the end, in the case of miniature paintings, 
we can have an additional six, seven or eight firings, but rarely more. And after that, we still have to do all the finishing. Again, we will still need several firings to put this famous fondant that protects the miniature. And all of this means that we need to increase the number of firings. But people sometimes think that every time there is a color, you have to fire it. No, it's not like that. Okay, all the preparation and the finish can lead to minor defects along the way that need minor touch-ups, which means an additional firing. But it's not 20 firings for a miniature painting. I think this is important to know. But what I find incredible is that when you prepare a column, single column, it will change during firing. It will evolve. And you need to be knowledgeable in enameling regarding the colors that you grind yourself in your workshop. And that is impressive. We do a lot of testing, actually. That's also part of making a miniature painting. I have a color that I'm not very happy with, so I spent a lot of time looking for other blends to find a replacement, and so on. So, there are colors that change a lot, and others that change a little. It's also the case when you put a miniature under fondant, as this Geneva technique is called. Some colors will fade, so that's it, too. When the miniature painting is finished, it's nowhere near the final result that we have before us. So, it's all alchemy. We try to master it, but we're never entirely in control. That's also what I really like about this art. That's what I find interesting. It's the lack of control. And what I now see a lot in this profession is a search for total technical control. I think that life is not about complete control. The firing also gives us beautiful surprises that I'm going to reuse for the rest of my work. And that maybe I didn't fully anticipate. And I say to myself, this color, it's a little more... But in fact, I find that it brings something additional. So that's one reason. At the same time, it is a creative process throughout the entire work. Well, that's the way I work, and that's what excites me. It's not about repeating and mastering. It's also about accepting these changes made during firing, and then knowing how I will carry them with me for the rest of the piece. But I can say that I recently made a big mistake myself. I was fully responsible. It forced me to go to great lengths to solve the situation so that I could finish this piece. And it made me discover a solution that I had never thought of. Great! Here's a whole path that opens up that I haven't explored. And in the future, I hope to be able to use it again. Indeed, the new door opens up. But if I understand correctly, in this technique where you prepare a piece and you have to apply six, seven, eight different colors, you perform a test beforehand with all the colors you are going to use. This way, you will be able to understand and confirm how these colors will behave and evolve after each firing in the kiln. Only then will you start working on the piece itself, correct? Exactly. Well, there are some colors I know really well and that I don't need to test. But when I look at each new dial, I do tests. So when I have my color palette, I won't just say, okay, that's a good color. But if you put one next to another, they're going to appear different. 
I have to do this for every new image, for every new project. It brings different colors together in harmony. And it is this resonance between two colors that is interesting. So I can look at my palette saying, this is the color, it's fine. And then when I put it next to the other, in the end I say, no, it's too light, or it's too dark, or it's not enough, the other color made it go too blue. So I have to put a little more green in it to make it warmer, because it's cooled down. So I love this very subtle research for colors. I love how they are alive. It's the resonance between colors that interests me. It is really the artist in you that is talking right now. But anyone else would succumb to this unbearable tension, since each of these steps could jeopardize months of work already accomplished. How do you deal with this? Or do mishaps or not happen to you often? I have more experience with repairing them. To know what, when it happens, I can do. On the other hand, it's true that here, again, I don't have an answer. Why? As I explained to you before, I had a big disaster at the end of last year. The piece was done. It had to be finished. It was close to the end. And what happens then? It's about character. It's the character of the individual. How do you react when you have a hardship in life? What do you do? That may not be too interesting for you, but I shut myself up. I don't react. I talk to no one, no one around me. Nobody knows what happened. And then, when I'm alone, I say, come on, let go. We have to start again. One day, I made a huge mistake on a very important piece, a miniature. We were coming up to the date I had to finish. And then there was a color that I knew very, very well, that I thought I knew very well. And I had to scrape, scrape away a layer. And it was like a minefield. It was appalling. And I didn't understand why. I spent three days, three nights, without telling anyone what happened to me. And why? As long as I haven't found a solution, I can't. I'm not going to shout. It may not be good for me. But I will not scream. I don't cry. I close myself down. And once I have researched and been able to recover, I immediately get back to work very quickly, that's for sure. Late last year, I know when it happened. It weighed very heavy on me. I said nothing. I worked all day with my collaborators, and I said nothing. I helped others, I said, I will help you with your work, and then I did other things when they left. I got to my bench, worked until late in the morning. I worked without knowing if I was going to succeed in repairing it. And then, yes, it happened. I could. I found this new way, a solution to fix it. People either bear failures or they don't. You have to overcome them, failures. And above all, you have to find the energy to continue. In the past, you said that psychic endurance and resistance to failure 
are a matter of character. Yes, yes. And there it is. It also happens in the atelier with my collaborators. If there are times when I think that there is something wrong, and I can feel that, I take the piece myself, and I work on it so that I can restore the energy for them to continue. And why is that? Is it character? I can't tell. That's just how it is. I think some of the materials you use in your work belong to a totally lost world. They are very difficult, if not really impossible, to find these days. The proof of this is that your cupboard is like a color piano, but you have to know how to play the instrument before you can make music out of it. Yes, quite. So yes, I have a palette of colors, old colors. And these colors, we have lost the understanding behind how to produce them. Other factories in Austria, England and France long ago began to reduce their color palette because they no longer sold enough enamel. So, again, it was a new social thing where we said to ourselves that we had to abide by profitability alone. You know, many things have been damaged and lost in our world due to this obsession with maximum profitability. It is a choice of society that is a choice in management. That means that if we have 50 colors, we think, that one I sell well, that one too, 35 of them are fine. But there are 15 that we don't sell. We see that everywhere. We remove the 15 that we don't sell because they are not profitable enough, which is very sad. This is a cultural impoverishment of our society. We will replace everything with other techniques where, you know, we have all the pantones. This is what I see currently happening. It is the replacement by different types of paintings which will replace the original technique. Only major collectors will be able to prevent this. I think only they can allow this craft to continue. This is because it takes too much time and is less profitable. We can't make series and series of them because the new colors will last much less time. It's not me who can decide the future. It would take a dignified act of will and, above all, a culture like the one they have in Japan. There, there really is the preservation of know-how because it is part of their culture. There is the importance given by the authorities, the government, to preserving, something we don't have at all in Europe. Not at all. It does not matter. Again, what is important is to change, invent and seek new techniques that can adapt to industrialization. It's not about saving know-how. It's about creating a machine that will do the job. For me, it will never be the same thing. I am convinced it will never be a true reproduction of a painting or the actual painting. But if we want to follow this path, if we think only about profitability, we will make it happen. And I believe there is a danger of this happening in the next few years. Unfortunately, now there is no conscience to implement a safeguarding policy at a governmental level. And this is what we see from those who are responsible for this craft. 
It's going towards an industrial, technical and engineering path with perfect quality controls, but it will no longer be a know-how entirely done by hand. Now, I can say that I made this choice a long time ago. I am so moved and amazed by all the ancestors, all the people who worked before me, who developed this profession with the simple intelligence of the hand and the mind, and the experience that has been passed on. I am so in awe that I need to continue in this direction. And I am also absolutely amazed at what the hand of man can do. And these connections between the brain, the heart and the hand are absolutely essential for me. There is no comparison with any machine that replaces it. I recently heard people who were amazed at a machine that made perfect, exceptional stone settings. It's awesome. You can do so many jewel pieces. How did they invent this machine and how did they develop it? They took the best stone setter in their company and put sensors on him, especially on the fingers and all over his hand. They had him make a jeweled piece and then the computer recorded every micro movement. So after that, it was a program and nothing more than a machine. For me, it's a technical feat, but that is not very interesting. Why? Because the computer will repeat the task. While the man, the gem setter, each piece that he will work on himself will evolve and he will always progress. So he's going to add new things every time. It's terrific for engineers, for economists, but not for me. So I want to explore and explore until the very end, see what I can do and have all my failures that will enable me to discover and learn something else. It's more interesting for me, but I think there will be two paths to follow. The one that I have taken all along and that I defend. I don't know if it will continue or be allowed to continue. But it's really the buyer's demand that can make a difference. But for there to be a demand, you need a culture. You also need an expert eye to determine the difference between a machine-made piece and a handmade one. And then you need certain ethics and a certain honesty on the part of the manufacturers regarding the process they used to produce each piece. We know that the art of enameling concentrates on different techniques and variations. Flanquier, plique à jour, bayonnier, grisaille, champ levé, cloisonné, grand feu enamel, etc. etc. But at the very top, miniature painting. And today, ending matchmaking too, this decoration technique is considered the métier d'art by excellence. Anita, is miniature painting on enamel the most challenging job in the world? I think that there are a lot of exceptional artisans. The art of basket weaving in Japan, micro mosaic with stones, there are many outstanding crafts. On the other hand, in all enameling techniques, miniature painting is practiced as it was in the past. 
It is the craft that requires the most time, and that is the most sensitive, which also requires the most aptitude in terms of painting, simply in terms of art, design and art. So it has always been at the top because it takes months to get to the end of a single piece. I think that, indeed, among the different enameling techniques, miniature painting requires the most knowledge and time. But I can also say that cloisonné can also challenge us. We can also develop cloisonné to an extreme in that it becomes incredibly complex and challenging to do and requires a lot of time, to a point where it will be impossible to reproduce a piece. There has been no other technique in enamelling that can reproduce a painting to perfection like miniature painting, that's for sure. But when we talk about cloisonné, for example, we mean the miniature work done with gold wire, not using CNC. But you know, in the future, I'm almost sure that there will be 3D printers that will make on-demand cloisonné grillage in a substitution of the enameler who would just put his tiny wire where the colors would then be enclosed. But again, because it will be so perfect, we will see pieces made in series. And that's it again. We lose the know-how of having a wire that we're going to twist ourselves, cut and then lay to perfection. That it doesn't have to be in the kiln too long, how it will play with the colors and so on. This complexity, it will be lost. When I formulate a miniature painting on enamel, I see so many different things, different techniques. Let me be more precise. Over the years, and with all the technological developments that I've seen, I have changed the definitions used in this craft. Because before, we were just talking about miniature enamel paintings. That was all. And then afterwards, there was enamel which was just synthetic varnish, which is not really enamel. So I said, enamel miniature painting grand feu, to mean it was fired at a high temperature. Afterwards, it was necessary to know if it was covered or not with fondant. The work involved is entirely different, so we called it the Geneva technique. And now, I write that it's miniature painting on émail grand feu, which means that the material I'm using, it's not like miniature painting on mother of pearl, on onyx. It's not only on an enamel base. I use enamel, glass to paint, and glass that is fired at high temperatures. At each step, I look for ways that I can use different techniques, because I do the work entirely by hand, from start to finish. There is no introduction of industrial techniques or machines that can replace this. I think collectors should demand that brands describe what they do clearly and accurately. I think it's crucial for this craft. For them to survive, yes. And that's why I always come up with other definitions. Because I see that sometimes the salesperson's description is not exact at all. Let's consider what we've seen lately in the watch fairs. There are a lot of miniature paintings that are not based on glass. And we also have miniature paintings that have indeed been made with porcelain paints. And that's already something different. Or miniature paintings made with synthetic varnish. 
which means that these two components with pigments are thrown into a kiln just to dry the varnish, not to melt it. Understand? So, they are also going to say that it went into the kiln, but that's not at all the case. It has nothing to do with the process. It's like a synthetic diamond versus an authentic diamond created over thousands of years. It has nothing to do with it. It's not the same material. There is no risk with firing. This transformation of colors in fire, this knowledge of the alchemy of colors that one must have, I would say it is even much more precise than enamel, than enamel miniature painting. Why? Because when I paint, I have microscopic glass particles, so it's not really liquid, it's not fluid. Sometimes I have larger pieces, sometimes just finer, even if it's very finely ground. I have something much harder to spread than a synthetic varnish. And considering that, I have heard that you have come to learn to grind enamel crystals by the sound they make. Over time, you have patiently learned to wash your enamels and let them settle to remove the veil that could disturb its clarity. You know, we can make machines that indeed grind in the same size. But again, if I just put enamels into a machine and then I take out my powder, a process is missing. While we are preparing the color, we are already involved in the work we do. It's already a part of the production of the piece. All this know-how, which is extremely slow, enriches the craftsman. I mean, just imagine that now we have fires, kilns where we have entered the temperature to the nearest degree, but before there was nothing. Afterwards, we had a gauge that gave us more or less the temperature, but there was nothing like that in the first kilns. So, the painter or the enameler had to learn to look at the stone's color to know if the kiln was hot enough. So, he already had to consider the color of the stone, and afterwards, he also had to be meticulous. Now, I see processes that consider how many seconds you leave your piece in the kiln. It's not interesting. It's not interesting. In one's life, what is interesting is how you can enrich yourself every day with something new. That's what makes me want to redo everything and continue to do it my whole life. My life has the meaning of a human life, which is always to learn. It is not to repeat. After that, we are very quickly replaced by a machine. It's true. In 2015, you were awarded, along with Madame Suzanne Rohr, the Gaia Prize by the International Watchmaking Museum of La Chaux-de-Fonds for your independence, preservation and fundamental role in the revitalization of a discipline which was in the past on its way to extinction. On top of that, you were awarded the Artisan d'Art Prize in 2016 and, in 2017, the Prix du Patrimoine Culturel Immatériel Boudoir. But your talent was recognized much earlier by an exceptional maker. In 1984, the House of Philip Stern awarded you the Patek Philippe Prize. In particular, I think this manufacturer had played, continues to play, a significant role in your career. Is that true, Lent? 
I think it's really of the essence to note that this house has the greatest enamel heritage in the world. And, above all, thanks to Philip Stern, they have never wholly stopped supporting this craft. Even if it has diminished, or even if they no longer sold any pieces, it was always supported by Patek Philippe. I think his father was a really great collector who loved this craft. He started this collection and Philippe Stern continued it because he didn't have a perspective based on short-term profitability. I find it magnificent that he had this perspective. I can't deny work to these enamelers just because I'm not selling it. One day there might be a comeback and then the know-how will be lost. So it's extraordinary that he thought like this in order to support us, even if he had to reduce his orders a lot. Enamel wasn't fashionable anymore, and it sold very poorly. The craft was little known. But he always continued to give some work to enamelers so the know-how could be preserved. And then I can also thank again and underline that Philip Stern has supported and helped me so that I could share this craft with others. He helped me transform the place where I can now welcome other people. I have had three pupils learning with me for almost 10 years and to whom I can pass on the knowledge. But the most remarkable thing is that, in addition to that, he left me unfettered. It means he left me free to work for others, other houses. That is really something very unusual and extraordinary. I was fortunate because I also explained to him that, as I told you earlier, what motivates me is to always be researching and creating. So when I start working with a brand, I try to understand its DNA, the past of the house, and where it will enrich or bring back this profession, but always in the style of that house not with my own voice doing my own thing and adding my aesthetics. Not at all. And all that made me go to many different universes. And that was essential for me so as not to be able to close myself off, confine myself to a little path. And that he has always really respected. I'm fortunate to have met him. And that kept me independent, free to express myself while also having a lot of fun. I must emphasize that he left me completely free to create the 175th anniversary piece. I was able to bring something that I wanted, a mix of techniques, with a lot of freedom, which I could make whilst respecting the DNA of the house of Patek Philippe. If, in our world, we say that Nicholas Hayek saved the Swiss watchmaking industry, then we can also say that Philip Stern saved the notion of metida in watchmaking. Yes, absolutely. I think so too. He also saved the vision of mechanical watches at a time when there was almost only quartz. I believe in the mechanical watch the mechanism and the development of the movements. He too had this audacity to go against the current. He was visionary too. And as I already said, in 2017, you received a special prize from the Grand Prix de Lauderie de Genève jury, along with Madame Suzanne Bohr, who was your teacher and a pupil of Carlo Poluzzi. How was it to learn from her? 
Can you describe us your experience? It was a wonderful experience, but maybe not very traditional. I would say that even now, I am still learning with Suzanne Rohr. I'm working with her, but she is the greatest miniaturist in the world to me. She did things of such beauty, but she also lived precisely in a moment where time didn't matter. Today, we have extremely tight deadlines and everything. But she was able to take the time she needed to go as far as possible. So we did not experience the same constraints. It's not the same time. It's not the same way. She dedicated her whole life to painting miniatures in Grand Feu Enamel, whereas I had this start without knowing her, where I had to explore all the techniques because I didn't have enough work. And then it took a very long introductory period too. Around 20 years ago, I visited her, showing her a little of what I was doing, but very little. And then we didn't talk about miniature paintings. We drank tea and talked about many things, but not about work. And it was only after all these years that she decided that she would pass on to me what she could. But more by talking, we never worked together. I never saw her work, never. We talked about color, mixing, and how to do it. But I now feel that I have worked as I could with the means that I could, which was very different from her all the same, without having had any knowledge of this technique from the outset, which means that now I also have a bit of my own language. I can't get rid of it entirely, because I have found a path that is my own, and I adapt to it with all the technical information it gives me. I adjust and do a bit of a mix of different things. But, and I must say this, she is someone who pushed technique as far as possible. You can't go any further with this technique. And now, today, you too have pupils in your atelier working with you, learning with you. Yes, it was also a request from Philip Stern, because I think he wanted things to be shared, including other techniques, the techniques of cloisonné, paillonné and all that. So that's why I was able to welcome people to work and collaborate with me. And this mutual enrichment is something extraordinary. I don't teach by saying, here, I'm going to teach you that and that, and after three years you have your diploma, you can leave. Look at me, I'm still learning. And they also learn with me. And that's the opposite of everything we see today. Because for me, this profession will only fit in a small niche. Even if there are buyers and people who ask for it, it will remain a small niche and much more of a secret than what we see. There is what I instead call industrialization of the profession, where we will have more mass-produced items and series. And alongside that, I wish there to remain a small path for the very expert to preserve the knowledge. So the people who are with me are learning with me all the time. And we will continue as far as possible. The goal is not to train many people, 
because I don't think there will be much work at this level, but rather to keep quality and know-how at the highest level. Now, in the future, I also feel that since all of watchmaking has become very industrialized, there are control standards with state-of-the-art processes that make it more and more challenging to meet industrial technical standards manually. Are you looking forward, like me, to the opening of the MIH exhibition on May the 1st, entitled The Mastery of Enamel? and where your work will be well represented? Yes, of course. I can't be at the opening, but I am very touched. It will be an incredible exhibition with fantastic pieces. Also, it is an exhibition which speaks of the transmission and the know-how, which poses important questions concerning the art school of La Chaux-de-Fonds. And then, it's still the city where I was born, where my godfather lived. So, effectively, it's a geographical place that touches and moves me. I'm thrilled that I was able to help this exhibition as I could. There was a tremendous amount of work done by the museum, of course, and I hope many people will visit this exhibition. And I hope it can spark a dialogue and a discussion about how we want this craft to continue with its handmade know-how, or if that is not important. In the next 10 years, we may see other choices, specific brands and even the world having to evolve. And then there are times we also have to accept that certain things will disappear or just become a part of history. I have done what I can and will continue to do so. I will continue until the end to protect the knowledge I have of this art and its handworking know-how. You once said a secret is whispered in the ear of the right person at the right time. But once revealed, it is no longer a secret. I hope that you are no longer a secret for many of our listeners. Dear Anita, it was an absolute honor and a pleasure to have you. It was a wonderful conversation and I thank you very much for giving us your precious time. No, it is with great pleasure. Thank you for allowing me to talk about this craft. I especially hope that collectors will continue to have this sensibility and love for this material and its transparency and depth. Never forget that glass, the color of glass, is unalterable. It will not fade for centuries. If you can acquire an enamel grand feu, it will remain pristine for centuries. Absolutely. Thank you, Anita. Thank you. And that's it for this episode. Thank you all for listening. And if you have enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe. And also remember following us on any podcast player you enjoy using in order not to miss our future recordings. This is Carlos Torres for Collectability.